morning, everyone, and a good third Sunday of Advent to all of you. Uh, in the New Testament, in the middle of Paul's letter to the Colossians, there's this beautiful section of verses in chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Maybe some of you know of the section I'm speaking about. And Paul, in that section, is essentially saying, this is what it looks like to live as people chosen by God to live a life of love. And in the center of that passage, we read this. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Or as the NIV puts it, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. On this third Sunday of Advent, we're continuing on in our series of practicing the way of Jesus, apprenticing ourselves to him. And simply stated, this means being with him, becoming like him, and doing what he did. We've been saying this now for a little while because we've been in the series for a while. Um, And according to New Testament writers like Paul, Scripture is a big part of that. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, the practice of Scripture, but not just reading the Bible, but praying it. What might it look like to let the Word of Christ not just sit around in our homes as nostalgic reference material, sort of like Encyclopedia's Britannica from 1974, but actually to have the run of the house? What would it mean not just reluctantly to give it a bit of space, but like, you know, kind of like a rare but mostly uninvited guest, um, but rather to let it dwell among us richly? And what would happen if we actually gave the word of Christ plenty of room in the house, in our lives? What kind of people, what kind of church might we become? Now, there might be some in the room who, as soon as the Bible is mentioned at all, you tune out or you certain, notice a certain reaction inside you. I don't know, maybe a little bit like this guy. And maybe it's even manifest in your body. The voices, the arguments against it in our culture are many and varied. It's way long. It's boring. It's cumbersome. It's hard to understand. It's outdated. It's a long list, barbaric, whatever it happens to be. Many in our culture don't know how to read it well, and so they either ignore it entirely or... They read it poorly and do plenty of damage in the process. If we were to set our Facebook statuses in terms of our relationship with the Bible, many of us, I think, would probably say it's complicated. And I get it. And as a church leadership, we get it. And that's why earlier this year, we actually wanted to do a series. We were driven by some of these questions to do a series called Breaking Up and Making Up with the Bible. And one of the main goals of that series was to find new pathways of relating to the Bible and new practices. And so if you happen to miss that series, or you weren't around at that time, or um, you have questions or doubts about the Bible, it may be useful to you to revisit that sermon series on our website. And since those podcasts exist, I won't take time this morning to address all of the common objections about Scripture, because we'd be here for a long time. I simply want to name the fact that for some, our relationship with Scripture may be complicated or awkward. And yet, gratefully, there are signs of change in our community. A number of us are on a healing path. Slowly but surely, we're forging new pathways and practices and learning better ways of relating to this book. And for those this morning who may not yet be on that kind of trajectory, a healing path in terms of your relationship with Scripture, uh, my hope is that the, the kind of approach, the kind of practice that I'm going to share with you this morning may play a just small part in leading you into a more hopeful 
relationship with Scripture. So we need help, and let's, uh, let's pray to that end. Lord, we join with the disciples who, when you asked him, are you going to desert me too, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words that, of life that, are, that is truly life, words of eternal life. So we want to see you this morning and know you. We want to be met by you and encounter you as we open up the scripture together. In the name of Christ, amen. So again, we all come with a unique history with scripture, different understandings, different familiarities. And in her book, Sacred Rhythms, Ruth Haley Barton suggests that one way to reflect on our varied experiences with scripture is to think about the difference between reading, say, a news article or textbook and reading a love letter. So when we read the news, most of us read it in a bit of a rush. I'm curious, how many of you get most of your news from Twitter? Just curious. Well, you know, just a handful. Want to admit? No, it's fine. Um, whatever the source, most of us read, I think, enough to just get the headlines or the gist. I'm really grateful for News 1130, that that exists. And you can sort of get the headlines as we're driving to work or wherever. We probably read it through a lens of at least some skepticism. Maybe we're not totally convinced that what we read was completely factual or without bias. No one wants to be hoodwinked by fake news. If you had an actual newspaper in your hands, or even if you're reading online, you probably made some editorial decisions about how much you'd read, what you would actually read, chose a few sections, sports, pull, pull that one out, whatever it is, or some selective clicking, and you probably didn't finish most of the articles. It's also likely that you didn't feel much anticipation when you turned to the news this morning or whenever you read it last. Maybe because a lot of it is bad news or sad news, or frustrating news. And it's not being written, really, to elicit any kind of strong emotional response anyway. Chances are good that you didn't notice who wrote the articles, maybe didn't care. And it's similar with a textbook. Think back to high school, where we all learned, or we tried to learn, methods that enable us to read as little as possible to get the best grade possible, especially when the subject was of little or no interest to us. So in those situations, most of us developed at least a bit of skill in cramming information into our heads and keeping it there barely long enough to be able to, what's the word we all used? Regurgitate it on a test. There was no emotional connection with the author or the content. And while there were, hopefully, courses, classes that we loved and enjoyed, a lot of the time we had more utilitarian purposes when we read textbooks, getting a good grade completing the assignment, solving a problem, proving a point, writing a book report. And once the box was checked, whatever that box happened to be, we didn't give the material a second thought. Well, been there, right? Now, can you think of a time when you were exchanging love letters or emails or texts or instant messages with someone? Remember the sense of expectancy as the notification pinged. How amazing was it that an actual person expressed feelings for you? Did you go to a special place to read it? What about the feeling of savoring every word, wondering what these things might mean? What emotions did you feel? Maybe some of us still have certain letters tucked away to remind us that special person and that special time. Sadly, many of us approach Scripture more like a textbook than a love letter. 
In Western culture especially, we're conditioned toward a certain kind of reading, an informational reading process that establishes the reader as the master of the text. We're taught to use techniques that allow us to use the text to advance, advance our own purposes. And this kind of reading, of course, is as much about covering as much ground as possible, as quickly as possible. And the emphasis is always on mastery, controlling the text for our own ends, gathering information, interpreting, applying the information, proving our point about something, gaining a ministry tool, solving a problem. And when we're in information-gathering mode, we, of course, become analytical and at times critical or even judgmental. We read through cognitive filters made up of preconceived thoughts and feelings and biases, systems of doctrine, teachings, and life experiences that have shaped us. And Ruth Haley Barton sums it up well when she says, when we are in this mode, it is exceedingly difficult for us to hear anything new because we have so many unconscious defenses in place. Now, hear me clearly on this. I'm not knocking the information-gathering mode full stop. You and I need to have an information-gathering mode if we're going to survive most academic settings and other places in our culture. But, says one writer, when it's applied to Scripture, this approach does not serve the deeper longing of our heart, the longing to hear a word from God that is personal and intimate and takes us deeper into the love our soul craves. The study of Scripture is important, but if we stop there, we will eventually hit a wall spiritually. Information gathering may be exhilarating and even useful at times, but in the end, our soul knows that there must be something more. So if Barton is right, then the question obviously becomes, is there an approach to Scripture that does serve this deeper longing of our hearts? I suggest there is. It's an approach geared towards spiritual transformation rather than just information. It's one that engages not only our minds, but our hearts, our emotions, our bodies, our curiosity, our imagination, and our will. It's a way of reading and being with Scripture that opens our whole selves to a deeper level of understanding and insight. It's one that grows out of our relationship with the God behind the text, and it leads us deeper into it. It's one that occurs in the context of relational intimacy so that true and lasting and life change, lasting life change sorry, can take place. It's an approach where apprenticeship to Jesus can happen, not just mental assent to a system of belief. I invite you to have a look at the text printed in your handout this morning or on page 840 in the chair Bibles or Hebrews 4 in your own Bible if you happen to have one with you. I'll give you just a few seconds to get there because I'd like to invite us to read it out loud together. So those of you who have the text in front of you in some form, I invite you to join me reading Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I don't know how you hear this, Scripture being described as sharper than any double-edged sword. For me, this is one of the verses I heard quoted frequently as a kid 
So much so that in my circles, the Sunday school classes and boys' brigades and youth groups that I attended growing up, the Bible occasionally became known as a sword. Oh, you brought your sword, sweet sword. You brought to youth there. Forgot mine today. And then we'd have sword drills. Draw swords came the command from the leader, which meant you take your Bibles, you hold them in front of you, and then the leader would walk along the line and check, make sure no one's got their thumb in the edge of the pages so they could, you know, be faster than the other person. And then Job 12, verse 7. Job 12, verse 7. They'd always say it twice, make sure everyone got it. Then we waited. Charge! Say, and then the room would fill with sounds of kids just flipping through their Bibles, opening, closing. Some of them would be saying the books in order. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Oh, Job, okay, found it. Here we are. Job 12, verse 7. Within a few seconds, someone would find it, usually a girl. And she would step forward while the rest of us exchanged looks of disgust and defeat. And the leader waited for silence, and the winner would read the verse aloud. Job 12, verse 7, but ask the animals, and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you. (laughs) So the verse itself meant nothing. This was about competition. The Bible was a sword, and we did drills with it using the words, draw swords and charge. And this was in a supposedly nonviolent church tradition. Well, good news, friends. The Bible is not a sword, at least not in the way we usually think of swords. The text actually doesn't even say that. It says it's sharper than a sword. And its target is not our enemies. Its target is not people who don't agree with us, because it was never intended to be weaponized. Its target, if we can use that word, is your soul and mine. Its intent is to capture our hearts with fierce precision. The Word of God is indeed alive and active, and we can experience it that way to the extent that we let it lead us into closer relationship with the triune God. I would even say it this way, that the writer of Hebrews is saying that this approach to the Bible is less about us reading Scripture than it is about Scripture reading us. What does the text say? It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. What else could that mean besides Scripture reading my mail? Have a listen to Peterson's translation. God means what he says. What he says goes. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. To put it another way, our approach to Scripture ought to be one where we expect it to change us. And for that to happen, we need to engage it in ways that allow it into the very depths of who we are. We need a practice that continually connects us with the aliveness and the activity of Scripture. Before we get to that, let's recall that this series is about practicing the way of Jesus. There's a dog in the room. Hey, welcome. And apprenticing ourselves to Jesus. So let's ask the question, where in his life might we observe an approach to Scripture that penetrates the heart, that touches the whole person and invites relationship with himself. Does such a thing exist? Well, a lot of things could be said about this, but let me offer three quick observations. One is that Jesus prayed the Psalms. The Psalms 
as most of us know, were the prayer book of ancient Israel, and that meant they were also the prayer book of Jesus himself. He was trained to pray by this book. How do we know? Well, as a boy being raised in a Jewish family, he was active in synagogue life, where the reading of the Psalms and other Hebrew writings were central. We also see it in his mother's piety. Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1 is steeped in the language of the Psalms. We'll get to that a little bit more in a few moments. We also see it in Jesus' prayers on the cross. Four of his last seven words or utterances echo the Psalms. The most well-known of these, of course, is his quotation of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When someone dies, we know this, right? They will revert to the prayers that are most deeply rooted in their soul. Second observation is simply Jesus saw himself as integral to the teaching of the Old Testament. We know this story well because we refer to it often, but after his resurrection from the dead, there's a story in Luke's gospel where Jesus found two of his apprentices on the road to Emmaus, and he joined them. And as they walked, Luke tells us this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. He's walking with two at first, and then a bit later, Jesus shows up in front of the rest of the disciples while they were still talking about their hearts burning while he was with them, opening up the scriptures to them, the connection between scriptures and the heart. And he shows them his hands and feet. He invites them to touch them, to see for themselves that he's truly alive. He eats a meal in their presence. And then in these verses, Luke 24, 44 and 45, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So not only did Jesus see himself as central or integral to the teaching of the Old Testament, but as a better, more accurate source of God's revelation. Think of the repeated refrain within the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. Third observation is that Jesus warned explicitly about approaches to Scripture that don't lead to relationship with him, that don't get to the heart and soul of what he came to be about. As we know, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were constantly challenging him on his interpretation of Scripture, trying to trap him, trying to trip him up, trying to show him up. And I love these two verses in John's Gospel where Jesus kind of just throws down. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40 says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's like he's saying, you guys, these words alone will not save you. They won't heal you. They won't bring you life. They won't give you the something more that your hearts truly long for. You can only find that in me. Read scripture by all means. Do it every day if you want, multiple times a day, but whatever you do, see me on these pages. Find me there. Otherwise, you're missing the point of pretty much everything. I love what Jonathan Martin offers on this. He says, scripture is the word, capital W, insofar as it bears witness to Jesus. The revelation of Jesus authenticates the text, not the other way around. 
we do reinterpret all Scripture through the lens of Jesus as the epistle writers did. Where there is tension in accounts, we don't get to say, for example, in Judges, we kill our enemies, but Jesus tells me to bless them, so I'll pick which one I like. Jesus is the final word. So how might we develop that kind of approach to Scripture? One where we're reading for relationship, one in which we read for transformation, not merely information, an approach that leads us to encounter God. Lectio Divina, which means divine reading or spiritual reading, is a practice whose roots, roots go back a ways to the third century, when the early church mothers and fathers of the Christian faith began to look at Scripture as something to absorb, to take in, to digest slowly. In the sixth century, Lectio became an essential part of monastic life and prayer, as St. Benedict included it in his rule of life. The way I like to think of Lectio, or some pronounce it Lexio, is as a means of using both head and heart to integrate God's Word in us. It is a way not just to learn about God or to get massive chunks of Scripture into our heads as information, but rather to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, as we said at the beginning, to to let Scripture be at home in our souls. Now, ways of practicing Lexio vary as do the names given to the stages. Some keep the Latin, silencio, meditatio, oratio, and so forth. The process I was taught was to first choose a short text, about six to eight verses of Scripture, occasionally longer, and often from the lectionary, so that there's a link to the church around the world and a link to the church calendar that we find ourselves in, whatever season we find ourselves in. Then the first reading is actually two readings. I read the text twice, slowly, seeking to pay attention to the image or the word or phrase that stands out to me. As someone put it, what word or phrase seems to have neon lights for you? If I'm in a small group, I'll invite people to share that word or phrase without any further commentary. If I'm alone, I'll simply underline or circle the word or phrase. Then comes the second reading, just one this time. And I read the text again slowly, this time listening for the intersection with my own story. How does this word or image connect with my life? If I'm on my own, I often would start to journal on this. I'd make connections, beginning to reflect on why and how this word or phrase might be resonating with me at that particular moment. And I would invite people to share openly, if in a group setting, uh, along these lines. And then third, a final reading, And here I'm listening for invitation. What is the invitation God seems to be presenting to me? And crucially, how might I respond? Again, on my own, I would journal on both the invitation and my response. I would name any struggles I'm experiencing that might hinder a desired response. I would ask for God's help in responding. In a group, we would share what we're sensing God's invitation might be. And then we'd hold a brief space for response whether that's audible or in silent prayer, or to simply rest in what God has given. So that's the process. Two questions that I want to address. What difference does Lectio Divina make? I want to share briefly my own story around this. Since it was introduced to me in my late 20s, I've found that a a regular, consistent practice of Lectio has enriched my life in many, many ways. For one thing, it has helped change my relationship to Scripture. 
Once I had emerged from childhood, when the Bible was mainly stories about a loving God made tangible in Christ, I entered an adolescent period when the Bible was more often presented to me as a rule book. It was the era of sword drills. And so depending on whether I felt I was keeping the rules or breaking them, the act of reading scripture either felt like a form of practicing self-righteousness or self-punishment. And so as someone trying to apprentice myself to Jesus, I know scripture also needs to be studied well, interpreted responsibly, but an overemphasis on study doesn't always foster an intimate transforming friendship with the God of the text. In fact, some seasons of my life where it's been mainly about study, the effect has more often been to keep God at a safe distance while maintaining the appearance of an active spiritual journey. Because look at all the studying I'm doing. Eventually, I realized that this longing within me for Scripture to be something different, something more than a rule book or textbook, and less fear-inducing than a weapon, um, that longing existed. But until someone introduced me to Lexio Divina, I couldn't articulate what that was. So Lectio has not only helped Scripture become a story again, but a story with a loving, compassionate, shalom-seeking God as its center and primary actor. So it puts me in a place where I want to be attentive and responsive to the voice of God because I know, and increasingly this is a heart-knowing by grace, that that voice is love, that that voice desires my flourishing, and in fact desires me. I know Lectio has done similar things for some of you as well. So I want to invite us to practice this together in a few moments, but one other question that someone raised for me not too long ago, and I like this one. How do you know you're hearing correctly from God through this practice? And that pushed me into some good reflection. First, I don't know if one can ever arrive at a place of total certainty in hearing God correctly. When it comes to communication with the triune God and becoming more comfortable with language of assurance as over against certainty, I'm assured that this is true. And since Lexio, as I have understood it, is about integrating head and heart and correctness tends to be mostly about the head, one of my hopes is that the practice of Lexio leads me into a deeper heart knowing of God and God's presence with me and for me and God's leadership in my life. So how do I know if that is happening? I look at the fruit in my life. Is what I believe I'm hearing from God through Lectio leading me to become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more good, more gentle, and self-controlled? If so, there's a pretty good chance I'm hearing correctly. Then there's also the communal accountability. Are others seeing similar fruit in my life? Just have to ask Terry, what are you seeing? others in my neighborhood group, table group, whatever it happens to be. Other questions I might ask in order to test my divine hearing are like this. Does this sound like something Jesus would say? Does this sound like something a loving father would invite me into? Does this sound like something a comforting and empowering and challenging spirit would draw my attention toward? I also am coming to believe the emotions and our physicality play a role here. I haven't developed these thoughts too thoroughly yet, but if while praying scripture through Lectio, I'm affected emotionally by something that I'm sensing God say, or if my body is affected in some way, I'd want to pay attention to those things, as well as run them through the grid of the sorts of questions I'm asking earlier. It's harder to make stuff up 
if the emotions or my body are involved in what's being received. I love Bonhoeffer's quote here. It's in your handout as well. So you can take it home with you because it's so, so rich. The word of scripture, he says, should never stop sounding in your ears and working in you all day long, just like the words of someone you love. And just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them as they are said to you, accept the word of scripture and ponder it in your heart as Mary did. That is all. Do not ask, how shall I pass this on? But what does it say to me? Then ponder this word long in your heart until it has gone right into you and taken possession of you. So let's try it. Right here now, I'm going to ask for about four or five people to help me distribute copies of the text. Is anyone that would want to help do this? Just get these out there. Thanks, guys. Just send a few more in here. Thanks. So the text that we are going to uh, spend a few moments with here happens to be one of the lectionary texts for this morning, the third Sunday of Advent. And I love any time we can get into Mary's story when we're in the Advent season. Also wanted to mention that um, if you prefer to, to the little half sheet to read out of your chair Bibles, the text that we're looking at is on page 715, Luke 1 from 46 to 55. Okay, so here's how we'll do this. There's no pressure to share uh, with, with anyone around you if you don't feel like it, if it's not something that you're feeling drawn into this morning or for whatever reason it's difficult for you. So what we'll do is we'll have a first reading and I'll read the text two times through and then we'll have one moment of silence and I'll keep time as well so you don't have to worry about that. And in that silence, I invite you simply to pay attention to the image. What word, phrase, or image stands out to me? If you've got a pen or pencil handy, you may want to uh, circle, underline, whatever, in that minute of silence. And then we'll move directly into a second reading. And then I invite us to spend three minutes in silence following that reading and invite you to listen for the intersection. How does this word or phrase or image intersect with my life? Why might this be the word or the phrase or the image that's standing out to me in this moment? You may want to, again, jot down a few notes around that. After the three minutes of silence, we'll move directly into the third and the final reading, and we'll have more silence following that. And there we are listening for the invitation. What is the invitation God is presenting to me? And to begin to move toward response. How might I respond to it? And after that last period of silence, um, I'm going to invite a few of us, anyone that would be willing, to share your invitations with the community. I'll come around with the microphone and just give you an opportunity. This is what I was sensing God inviting me into this morning. And we'll get a chance to hear from each other around that. So um, one of the benefits of doing Lectio in a group setting is that you get to hear what's going on in someone else's heart and life as well. And so if you would be willing to join me in that, invite us to, to do this. One little bit of advice in the first reading... Or even as we continue through the practice, someone told me this early on, and I was really appreciative of it. Um, And the word was this, don't try to make anything happen. Don't try to just create a a magical sort of uh, something spectacular. I love what one person said about Lectio. It's not always spectacular, but it's always transformative. So nothing dramatic that may happen, but just, just see. 
what, what emerges for you. And as we move through the steps, as I mentioned, you may want to make uh, some notes or just reflect in your own heart. So just a brief moment of silence and stillness to take a deep breath. But you get as comfortable as you can in the chairs that you're in. Realize that's a challenge, but let's just be still for a moment and, and hear the first reading. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts, in most thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary said, my soul 
glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Amen. There's something about holding silence together in community as well as we all sit in attentiveness and in listening. That's something, something powerful in that. Are there a few uh, who might be willing to offer what they sensed God inviting them into? Um, if you would like, Joel, I'll come to you, or we can meet somewhere in the middle. Just invite you to share with us. Uh, so as I was reading, um, like I read it through a few times, I, and I kind of landed on the, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And kind of asking, well, am I hungry or am I rich? Um, and thinking about like, well, okay, am I rich? Well, I, I, I make more than the median income. I have all sorts of privilege. I am, I am a straight, white, able-bodied, not poor male in this particular society. I speak, my first language is the language that pretty much everyone around me speaks. In those ways, I'm rich, but I'm still kind of hungry. And I've been going through this one last period of, of work where I've just, I've had to do a lot of work. I've had to be very stressed. I've been very consuming. And the thing is, I know that I, I need rest, but one of the things I've been thinking about with this idea of hunger is that I don't even know when I'm hungry. Like, I was like, right now, am I hungry? No, I had a banana earlier. And I was thinking, like, when's the last time I've actually, like, been hungry? Like, I usually eat because I know this is the time to eat, and if I don't eat now, I'm not going to be able to eat later, and then I eat, and then I'm like, later someone's like, are you hungry for anything? And I'm like, I, I guess I could eat, but I don't know when to eat. And I, and I was thinking, um, I was pondering this idea of hunger. I realized the problem is that, like, I don't even... I have, I have been in this season, like, I, I'm, I'm grateful for where I am. I'm not complaining about that, but I've been so focused on, like, helping others and, and kind of focusing on my tasks and that sort of thing that I, I've become numb to my own hunger. Like, I used to work, I worked construction for, like, a month, but by lunch, I would be ravenous. Like, you, you, you move things around, and you're, like, by, the, by lunch, like, that, that sandwich was just, it was, it was, going to be delicious, and then it was gone. And um, I think that what I, what I feel I've been invited to was even more like spend time with that hunger. Like be aware of where, like what is that hunger? Is it, is it, is it worry? Is it, is it concern? Is it despair? Is it wanting to know that when I have done all the things that I am supposed to do that I'm like still cared for even if I miss them? Like wh what is that? And so I think to spend time with that hunger and be aware of, of what it, it says about what I need 
God for, like to commune with that hunger and let it be the, the, the avenue through which God can, you know, fill me with good things. Thanks, Joel. Someone else? Hi, my name's Edwin. Um, the thing that spoke to me was the last couple of verses. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And I look at that and I think about how we are the spiritual Israel, the body of Christ is the spiritual Israel. And all the promises and covenants in the Old Testament that are there for the spiritual Israel. There's many for the physical Israel, but there's a lot for the spiritual Israel, which we are. And I say that because in Romans 2, it says, He is not a Jew who says he's a Jew, who is one by circumcision of the flesh, but he is a Jew who says he's a Jew who is one by circumcision of the heart. And if you study circumcision in the Old Testament, how it leads, it leads from the flesh to the heart. And as the spiritual Israel, we have that heart and we surrender uh, to the promises and the covenants that the Lord has promised Israel and Abraham. Thanks so much, Edwin. Someone else? Um, I felt um, kind of invited to um, s- stop um, trying to extend myself towards mercy and um, instead to let mercy be extended to me. Good morning. My name is Ruth. I'm visiting today. This passage to me is all about reversals. It's uh, an upside-down kingdom that I believe we're being called to live. It truly is a revolution, and it's a Jesus revolution. So what would happen if we would take this seriously and reverse the lenses through which we look reverse our perspectives, reverse power structures, even reverse pronouns in this passage. What would happen? Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Hi, my name is Danielle, and um, the Mighty One has done great things for me, stood out to me, just gratitude. And but he has lifted up the humble um, service of others. A few more, right at the back. I see you. Oh, it's Chelsea. Yeah, I'm Chelsea. Um, for me, there were um, neon lights shining on generation, 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 innermost generation, our ancestors. And if you've ever been to my house, you know I have kept precious things from my grandparents and their parents and my parents. And um, 
each of them is like a souvenir to the lore of their character. And I've never actually spent any quality time with almost any of them. They've all passed when I was a little kid. I may not have ever met them at all, but they were eulogized in family lore through their choices. And I felt that the Lord um, crossed out the last line, our ancestors from um, your spiritual family for me. And the picture of um, those objects as transferring lore of character um, as being a symbol that they paid or um, they sent ahead their legacy in things that couldn't be captured or sold or measured. Um, and I was, sorry, I'm going to try to jump to the point here. The idea of a traveler traveling the world with a backpack as their carry-on is with them all the time, and that's through their ups and downs and ups and downs. That's like our little baggage of the stuff we need in life. But um, we can always buy big souvenirs or invest in stuff and send it ahead in cargo that's shipped to a destination that doesn't travel with us. And there's something about the investment we make in our um, innermost thoughts when they're not scattered and when they're focused on the kingdom and focused on generations beyond ourselves that's like us shipping that cargo way ahead of us. And it doesn't necessarily travel with our being and our lives. And we can live lighter journeys when these things um, that we value are shipped ahead. So um, just because your life now might seem like my life might be heavy burdened with some stuff, the more I can ship ahead and give to Jesus and send to the kingdom and send to relationships and legacy, the less I have to carry with me. So that was cool. Yeah. Hi, I'm Nathan. Um, I kept reading where Mary was saying, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And I just kept imagining Mary being in total shock that God would choose her to do his work. And that from then on, great things are being done. And, and that uh, reminded me how God is using all of us to do his work and to do great things. And how that made me feel in awe that like, oh, I'm being invited in to work with Jesus, and he works in such a way that is collaborative, and he was collaborating with Mary to bring God to earth as a man, and we all get that opportunity to collaborate with God, and that just feels really cool that, like, we're being invited in, and that God collaborates with us. Would there be one more? Yeah, Bree. Hi, I'm Bree. I wasn't going to share, and then Chelsea started talking about generations, and I'm like, okay. That's what stood out to me. Um, yeah, the different parts about that generation to generation, the mercy passed on. Um, yeah, that stuck out to me because something, yeah, something weird that happened yesterday that now I have the microphone, so I will share. <laughs> it's just really personal. Um, but, yeah, I felt like the invitation was to receive and recognize the blessings that we have from past generations and hopefully to see that in others. Um, and that's something I've been thinking about because um, just a couple weeks ago, my grandmother died and she's really significant um, in our family with spiritual heritage and so many things. She was my mom's mom. My mom also passed away when I was little. So I've been thinking a lot about that and women in my family and just the weight of that and not having my mom and then yesterday, a random thing happened. Um, someone contacted me, who I go for coffee with like once a year, 
older lady friend. And she, I woke up to a message from her, and she just asked if we could maybe meet up sometime that she had a dream about that I was in, and she's never said anything like that before. So long story short, we go for coffee. Near the end, I asked her what the dream was, and she had a dream that she saw me and my mom and my grandmother walking through a doorway, like all white and like glowing and... I don't know, glorious, and she didn't know that my grandmother died, and that like I've been thinking about this stuff. So to me, I felt like that was a like affirmation of like blessing, and that we are together in the mystery, and we have so much we don't always see or sense, but it's still, yeah, poured out to us. So, wow, it's good. It's been rich. Thank you all for participating, for sharing, for listening uh, to each other's sharing. Um, Really briefly for me, the invitation was to, so God's saying, uh, keep getting to know me as your help. It was the phrase that he has helped his servant Israel and was reflecting on all the ways that I've been helped by God in all of the various tasks of the last season in my life, even when I don't remember to be merciful or those sorts of um, characteristics. But that was the invitation for me. Some other opportunities to practice Lectio. Um, We've been considering whether to start up morning prayer again. Uh, We took a hiatus from it about a year and a half year ago, year and a half ago, or something like that, on a weekday morning around 7.30. If that's something that would interest you, I'd like to hear from you, because we can put something in practice, and then there's two or three, and maybe that's fine. Um, but I would love to hear from you if that, has, if that carries some interest for you. Um, those of you who are in neighbor, neighborhood groups are often practicing Lectio, whether it's called that or not, through your upward direction. Often the way we try to shape that is with a bit of a Lectio type of format. So you're responding to the text in a way that's relational, getting to know the God behind the text. And certainly if you'd like to join us again for praying the Psalms retreat in uh, February, uh, early part of February, we will certainly include Lectio as a way of uh, praying the Psalms. Quick story before we move to the table. The early desert fathers spoke of engagement like this with scripture as contact with fire that burns, disturbs, and calls violently to conversion. There's a story about a man coming to Abba Pambo, Father Pambo, asking him to teach him a psalm. And so Pambo begins to teach him Psalm 39, but only got so far as verse 1. I will be watchful of my ways for fear I should sin with my tongue. The brother heard that and said, I I don't want to hear any more. He told Pambo, this verse is enough for me. Please, God, may I have the strength to learn it and put it into practice. And 19 years later, he was still trying. May that be said of us. May we receive invitations from God as we re-engage him in scripture and continue to practice what what we're being invited into. Let's pray together and then invite us to the table. God, the words of Mary uh, just before this text that we look at this morning when the angel visited her and said, this is what's going to happen. Mary chose to say, may it be to me as you have said. So we want to take on the kind of receptivity that Mary demonstrated and modeled for us. That the word you speak to us whether it's through your spirit, through one another, through creation, and through, or through scripture, that we would receive it and say yes to it.
Thank you for meeting us here in each other through, through the text as well. We pray that you would continue to reveal yourself and open us to deeper levels of relationship with you as we practice the reading and the praying of Scripture in this season of our life together. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.